Well, if you have a Bible, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. As we get close to wrapping up this book, this letter from Peter to the Christians scattered in Roman provinces of Asia, Asia Minor in the first century. Last week we began by asking the question, what does the church need in suffering times? And we said we need each other. We need the church. And so we looked at chapter 4. I'll just read a few verses. Like in verse 8, Keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each has received a gift, so use it to serve one another because you're God's stewards. Some will speak, and they should speak the oracles of God. And some will serve, and they should serve in the strength that God supplies so that in everything he gets glory through Jesus Christ. What do we need in suffering times? We need each other. We need love. We need hospitality. We need the gifts of the church. This week we could ask the same question, what do we need in suffering times? But see a slightly different answer in 1 Peter 5. We need leaders. We need shepherds. We need those who will feed and lead. Of course, the church needs leaders not just in suffering times. That's been Peter's point all along in this letter. How to live in suffering, especially persecuted times. But what he says about leaders here is equally applicable in any time. We see the same thing in other parts of the Bible that aren't so focused in preparing the Christians there for suffering. We need leaders at all times, not just suffering times, because the church isn't supposed to be an amorphous group of loving people, sort of like the religious equivalent of a a hippie colony. However well a group of Christians might pray and love and forgive and show hospitality and serve, however well they might do those things on their own, God's plan is that those tasks would flow out of a covenanting relationship with each other. And that's really implied in what we saw last week, a covenanting relationship to do this with each other. But God's plan is also that those tasks are facilitated and encouraged by qualified godly men who are appointed to do so. Appointed to teach and preach. Appointed to correct and direct. We live in an age and culture which increasingly has little respect, if not little use, for leaders or leadership. Leadership books are written for leaders. If you're not a leader, if you're not in management, you probably haven't read a leadership book. We're not interested in leaders. One who shows honor to those who are over him, whether that's nationally over him or vocationally over him, like Peter talked about back in chapter 2. The one who shows honor to those who are over him today, boy, that's a rare bird. And that's in part because of the inadequacies and sins of people who are over us. They are fallen human beings, after all. But it's also in large part because of, because of our own sins. Our own sins of pride and being self-willed. We are fallen human beings, after all. So self-appointed 
authority is the air in which we breathe today. Self-appointed experts are normal fare. We are a culture of the Monday morning quarterback, not just on Mondays and not just pertaining to football. Go to any blog on New York Times or Washington Post or USA Today and read the comment section. Go to any YouTube video that's gotten a lot of hits and read the comments there. No one is indifferent. No one is unsure. No one is shy, at least not those commenting. Oh, I know, those people who comment on blogs generally are, are nuts. But other parts of our culture as well foster this mindset of a self-made expert. We vote on everything from presidents to American Idol. You are the authority today. That's what we're told. We are consumers, and so the consumer is always right. Independence is in our DNA as a country, for better or worse. Independence is also quite tied to the history and the culture of the western half of the U.S., for better or worse. Not all of this is bad, but some of it is bad. And much of it makes leadership a difficult thing to categorically embrace. But again, we say God has a plan for our Christian growth, and it involves each other, like we saw last week, and it involves some who are called to be over us, who lead us. We need leaders. Even leaders need leaders. Some in the church will serve, Peter said last week, we saw And some will speak. Those who serve, serve in God's strength. Those who speak are to speak on God's behalf. And those who speak and lead in those ways must lead. Well, they must lead in certain ways. This is not raw authority that we're talking about. It's not blind submission, but it's true leadership. It's Christ-like leadership that we see in 1 Peter 5. Let's read together the first five verses of 1 Peter 5, where he writes... So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, before we get to the meat of the matter... The meat of what Peter calls these elders to be and to do. Before we get to that, we have to start where Peter starts in this passage. By recognizing who it is that addresses these elders. It's Peter, of course. And that's what he says in verse 1. That's our first point. A powerful appeal to fellow elders. A powerful appeal to fellow elders. That's where Peter begins. He exhorts the elders of the churches on the basis of three things. He appeals to them on the basis that he himself is a fellow elder. Now, 
he began the letter by rightly saying that he's an apostle. And when he did so, chapter 1, verse 1, he didn't refer to himself as the main apostle. He didn't refer to himself as the head apostle or the, the bishop in Rome. He didn't refer to himself as the first pope. Yes, Peter does seem to have stood out in his leadership of the early church. Just read Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council. The church has to figure some things out and come to some doctrinal decisions and practical decisions. And Peter's quite vocal, but he doesn't make the decisions. There's no indication in Scripture that Peter was of a categorical higher rank than any other apostle. He even took rebuke from the apostle Paul, remind remind you that Paul was added after. Paul was something like the 13th apostle. So Peter rightly and simply refers to himself as an apostle as he begins this letter, but later in the letters we come here, he addresses himself to these elders of the churches scattered in Asia Minor, not on the basis of his authority as an apostle, not as one over them, but, but alongside them. The apostle is also a fellow elder. Well, he certainly could once again address them here in chapter 4 as an apostle. One of the twelve. One frequently mentioned in close proximity to Jesus. One frequently sneaking away with Jesus. One of the three, Peter, James, and John, who frequently got special time with Jesus. He could have rightly appeal to these elders on that basis, but instead he's leveling the playing field. Peter, who so often in the Gospels is putting himself forward, putting himself out there, trying to get this step up in in this placement with the Lord. That Peter is now, in humility, leveling the playing field with the other elders of the church for their advantage. He's elevating them. But he also appeals to them on the basis that he's a witness of the sufferings of Christ. At first, that might look like Peter means to say that he witnessed the sufferings of Christ happen. He saw the cross, albeit from afar. And of course, he did. But I don't think that's what Peter means here in verse 1. Instead, I think we should think that Peter is saying... He is a witness to the sufferings of Christ. You see, he is a witness. He is a testimony. He witnesses. He testifies. Think of even our English word witness in a a legal sense as we use it today. A witness in court is someone who saw something or heard something or knows something, but then they also have to tell of it in court, right? They testify of it. They witness. They witnessed something, and now they witness of it. They tell of it. They know something, they tell of it. So Peter's using the word like that. Not that he has seen things these other elders haven't, although that's true, probably. He's saying, we know the same thing. We say the same thing. We testify of the same thing. We are fellow witnesses, fellow testifiers. They're just like Peter in this regard. And for that matter, so is every Christian. Every Christian is called to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Every Christian is to be ready to make a defense 
for the gospel. When anyone asks of the hope that's within you, you make a defense, even with fear and trembling and with gentleness in your speech. So Peter exhorts them as well as a fellow partaker of the glory that's to be revealed. That glory to be revealed that's been hinted at time and time again in this letter, something like 20 times it talks about that end time, Jesus coming, glory being revealed, seeing him, being made like him. In many different ways, Peter has talked about it, and here is certainly one of them, that he is a partaker of the glory that's going to be revealed. But, but if you read the letter, if you've been with us in this study, if you've read just the first four chapters so far, you know every Christian will partake of the glory that will be revealed when Jesus returns. He's leveling the playing field in humility and for our advantage, for the advantage of elders to whom he writes and every elder who will read it. In doing so, he's reminding them of their calling and their gospel hope and their message and what awaits them. It's a powerful appeal. Secondly, we see in this passage a presumed model of leadership. A presumed model of leadership. You see in verse 1 the phrase, the elders. That's not just old people of the church. That's an office in the church. And notice in verse 2, he says to those elders, to shepherd the flock, exercising oversight of the church. Now, these words are telling. It may not appear at first that they're telling, but they are. Peter's language here is tapping into a, a whole model, a whole structure of leadership for the church that the New Testament addresses more fully elsewhere. Not, not as a whole, like where you go to one passage and you get the whole picture of the church's government and leadership structure. But you get this piece over there, and this one's bigger than that one. And you put them all together, and, and a picture starts to emerge. And that picture is a God-given, divinely prescribed model for the church's leadership structure. You see, we don't believe that the leadership structure of the church is determined simply by the culture around us, simply by the times we live in, simply by what's popular in the business world. We don't determine what the leadership structure of the church should be simply by pragmatics, what seems to be working. And we don't believe the leadership, leadership structure of the church is determined simply by what we've always done, you know, what, what our church used to do, or what we did growing up, or, or the, the way they did 2,000 years ago or something like that. We, we go to the Bible and we see, well, we see three different terms for this office. One is elder, another is pastor, and a third is overseer. Three different words, but they're used interchangeably. In Acts 20, these three terms are used interchangeably. In 1 Peter 5, these terms are used interchangeably. You see, you have elders in verse 1, but then you have shepherd, like a verb, in verse 2. Now, shepherd can be translated, and often is, pastor. 
It's the same thing. Shepherd, pastor, it's the same thing. Sometimes our Bibles choose to translate it pastor, sometimes shepherd. Same Greek word. Here we have the verb form, to shepherd, but, but just like the word pastor, which can be a verb, can also be a noun. And so this is hinting at this work of pastoring, shepherding. Elders shepherd, they pastor, you see, interchangeable. And then verse 2 also talks about oversight. This is where we get our word overseer. Exercising oversight, yes, is a verb, but the noun version of that is overseer, or where we get our old English word bishop. But bishop isn't something over the elders or pastors. They're used interchangeably, right? The elders are the one who do the bishoping, who do the overseeing. They're also the ones who do the shepherding or the pastoring. Each of the three words has its own significance for the leadership role. Elders imply something of aged wisdom, even though someone like Timothy, who is probably younger than 30, can be not just a pastor, but an apostolic representative. And Paul has to tell him, let no one look down on you because of your youthfulness or your youth. Instead, be an example. So Timothy can be an elder and he can appoint elders, but there's something generally implied by elder meaning experience and wisdom. Pastor implies shepherding and overseeing, of course, implies, you know, seeing over. Each word has its own significance, but the words are basically synonymous in talking about the same office or role. That means elders are pastors and pastors are elders. That means that at the top there is a single layer of leadership for the New Testament church. Deacons would be another layer, yes, but deacons are called upon to, to be formal servants for the church or official servants for the church. They're not called upon to lead like pastor, elder, overseers are. At the leadership level, the oversight level of the church, it's a single layer. No bishop, no pastor over elders, no board over pastors or board over elders. If there's a board in scripture, it's elders. And elders, this term is always plural in the New Testament. It's always plural. Paul told Titus, Titus 1.5, I left you in Crete so that you would appoint elders, plural, in every town. Elders, plural, in every town. And don't think, well, that, that means every church. I mean, think about Albuquerque, all the churches around town. That, that could be one per church. Yeah, but this isn't the 21st century when Paul writes that. It's not 21st century America. It's 1st century Roman world when Paul writes that. And there weren't hundreds of churches or dozens even of churches necessarily. Titus was left in Crete to appoint elders in every town, no doubt implying multiple elders in each town in each church. This didn't come out of nowhere, this idea of elders. It's in the Old Testament. It's in the wisdom rooted in just the natural world. Proverbs says there's safety in the multitude of counselors. 
Yes, we're told today the buck has to stop somewhere, but we believe at Desert Springs that the buck stops with a group of men and not one single guy. Some of these elders are paid, and some of them are not paid. There's a distinction probably implied in 1 Timothy 5.17, if you want to look that up later on your own. You see, some pastor elders have shepherding as their full-time job, their only job, and others have both, a full-time job outside the church and then this voluntary job that they do inside the church and for the church. But that paid and unpaid distinction isn't one of hierarchy. It isn't 1A, 1B. It isn't an A team and a B team. No single elder pastor or group of elder pastors is above the others. So I'm not the senior pastor at Desert Springs Church. I'm the preaching pastor. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm not the pastor here. We talk like that. Maybe you grew up in a, a church culture that talked like that. And so people will say to me sometimes, are you, the, are you the pastor? I'll say, well, I'm the preaching pastor. And then they'll get this funny look. And, and sometimes I'll let it go. I know what they mean. They mean, are you the preacher? And by that, yes, I, I am. Some elders are more visible than others in a biblical model. Some elders are even more vocal than others in a biblical model. Some are more vocal to the church, guilty, <laughs> privileged, whatever you'd call it. And some elders are even more vocal within the eldership on a, on a given topic especially. You see, expertise and experience and special gifting in certain areas eventually brings about a unique voice or a special influence where that topic or area is discussed among the elders, some will be more quick to speak up than others. Some will be more quickly looked at for input than others. So Tim Bradley, who was up here earlier uh, doing announcements and is over counseling in our church, he's read and studied more biblical counseling than the rest of us and uh, on matters of marriage and biblical counseling. We, we frequently look to Tim and we, we expect his input on certain things. Ron Giese has a PhD in biblical languages. If we're studying something together as elders and a question about what this word means in the Hebrew, uh, I could offer a thought, but I would much rather look to Ron and say, Ron, tell us. Tell us what to believe here. What does it say? You know more, right? It would be, it'd be a shame for us to miss out on that, on that expertise and experience that he has. But ideally, these first among equals kind of relationships evolve naturally and organically, not so much structurally, so that it's in Ron Giese's job description. He's the boss of biblical language interpretation or something. No, no structural difference is in Scripture. No higher plane of authority is in Scripture. One elder may talk more about this or that thing than the other's but none of us, when it comes time to a vote, have a second vote or, or veto power. Peter may be the loudest apostle, but he's one of the apostles. He may talk the most at the Jerusalem council in Acts 15, but he doesn't give an edict. So it is with pastors. There is no senior pastor in the Bible. 
Well, actually there is. Jesus. And it's right here in our passage. Notice in verse 5, Jesus is called the chief shepherd. Literally in the Greek, this means the lead pastor. The lead shepherd. The head pastor or shepherd. He's the senior pastor. Any of those would be legitimate translations. The chief, the lead, the head, the senior. If we want to look for a senior pastor in the Bible, look up. It's Jesus. So all of this is what the New Testament prescribes for the church. God's word is not silent. He's not left us to our own imaginations. Oh, there are all kinds of questions that aren't answered in the Bible, all kinds of issues where the Bible doesn't give us a lot of specifics. We don't know how many elders there are supposed to be in any one church or for any one certain size. We don't know how long they should be elders as long as they... We know that they should desire it, and, and they should be qualified. And, and beyond that, we don't, we don't have any more information. We don't know from Scripture how an eldership should arrange itself in relationship to each other, or how you break up the work of shepherding among five or six or ten or fifteen guys, however many there are. We don't know from Scripture how we're supposed to come to decisions. We don't know, we're not told how we... Appoint elders or deacons. Not specifically. The Bible doesn't tell us everything, but the basics are here. The skeletal structure is is here. And Peter assumes that model. Maybe we should say even more than he assumes that model. He makes it pretty clear. He addresses elders, plural, who will pastor and oversee. Three words, one office, a plurality of collegial shepherding under one chief shepherd. He rules out a lot of options by wording it as he does. It's an assumed model. Thirdly, we see from Peter a weighty slash narrow call for elders. It's a weighty slash narrow call. In verse 2, he says, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. This is what he exhorts. In verse 1, he says, I exhort the elders among you. Then verse 2 finishes the sentence with what he exhorts, and it's two overlapping but distinguishable things. Shepherding the flock, exercising oversight. This is a weighty call put on these elders, but it's not an infinite call. It's not an infinite list. It's simplified, isn't it? It's pretty narrow, isn't it? I mean, you read some leadership books today and, you know, it could end with 25 suggestions, must-dos. If you subscribe to any kind of leadership blog like I do, you see all kinds of 25 things you must do this year. Or 10 things you must know about your staff. Or on on the lists could go. Those can be useful. But God's word gives us something narrow. Weighty, yes, but it's narrow, not infinite, not ever-changing. You're a shepherd. Elders, you're to shepherd. Shepherd means to feed. It means to protect And it means to lead. Just think of all the ways in which 
a real shepherd of real sheep goes about his work and, and what that word picture of shepherd and sheep says. I mean, one thing it says is something about the sheep. Sheep stray, don't they? I don't know anything about shepherding firsthand, but I know that from the Bible. I know that from reading that, that book, A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. Many of you have that and read that. We stray. We're stupid at times. I mentioned when preaching on Psalm 23 a year or so ago that that some sheep, if food is left out, will eat themselves to death. They will eat until their stomachs explode. They're that dumb. We Christians are we're dumb at times, aren't we? We're slow at times. We're vulnerable. We're needy like sheep. And so a literal sheep will lead his sheep to green pastures to eat because they, they don't go there themselves. And he will go after wandering sheep because they don't find their way back. And he will sometimes have to carry them over rocky terrain because they're not agile like mountain goats. A shepherd will have to care for those sheep which get injured and nurse them back to health. A shepherd will have to watch for wolves and other threats. He'll have to protect. He'll even have to risk his own life for their sheep, for his sheep. Paul talked like this in Acts 20. Listen to this. In Acts 20, after three years in the town of Ephesus, the church now established and elders in that church, Paul was getting ready to leave and leave for good. And he called the elders of the church to him. And he gave him a speech. He said, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves even, Within the eldership there will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, elder shepherds, be alert. Remember that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish every one of you with tears. You do the same, admonish them with tears. Pastors feed, they protect, they lead. Part of leading is exercising oversight. It's a more explicit way of talking about that leading part of shepherding. Decisions need to be made. Yes, some of those decisions will involve the whole church. We want to know and have your consent about big things. Not your approval necessarily, but your consent. You see, we don't want to think as elders we're leading and we're way out ahead and no one is actually following. That's not shepherding, is it? Neither is shepherding coming from behind and driving the sheep. We don't want to lead like that. And so we want consent. We want you to know certain things. We want your support of certain things, like the appointment of an elder. That's why we have, like we announced earlier today, a whole month before an elder is officially approved and, and appointed by elders we, we get one more chance with the church to hear any concern, for anyone to say, really? 
I know about this. I know about that. I, I, can't, I can't see that person in this role. I, I have concerns. We would want to know about that. But the Lord has entrusted to us the day-to-day leadership of the church. He's entrusted that to some and not to all. There's no way in a church of a thousand or whatever that we could possibly all run the church together. You know, you, you don't want to be in on the copy machine contract. I guarantee you, I don't want to. Thankfully, I'm not. We need to exercise oversight. Of course, as we'll see, not for the eldership's own gain, but for the church's. We're to shepherd the flock as though it were God's, because it is. It says in verse 2, shepherd the flock of God. How weighty is that? It's his. He says in verse 3, these sheep are those in your charge. They are those who've been entrusted to you. They're God's, and elders, you've been handed them. He says, care for them. You're stewards in that regard. Jesus is the chief shepherd. It's the flock of God. It's the flock of God that is among you, he says in verse 2, among you. You see, church, we elders, we're one of you. The shepherds are also sheep because there's a chief shepherd. We're under shepherds. There's a sense in which we're shepherd-like, in Jesus, like in that regard of leadership in the church, and yet there's a sense in which we're all the same here. We're all sinners being redeemed. We're all, well, we're all members, members of his body. Christ is the head. He's the chief shepherd. So we are among the sheep. And we're to actively be among the sheep. Not in different churches, Not ideally in different church campuses. The shepherds are to be those who, just like everyone else in the church, practice hospitality, like he said in chapter 4. We're to be those who serve and, and do our gifts up close with others. We're those who have need. We're those who are sheep as well. We need, we need correction. We need help. We're to be among the church, and we wish we could be more among the church. As time permits, we we are among the church. As opportunities permit, we are among the church. And then we think of ways of strategizing for shepherding on down to lower levels, because in our church, we we can't effectively shepherd hundreds of members and their children with five elders and a few elder candidates. So we have things like community groups, and that's an extension of eldership. It's a point of pastoral connection. It's for your good, and it's uh, an arm, you could say, of the eldership. But where we, could, where we can, where time allows, we love to be and want to be among the sheep, among the church, like Jesus. The sheep should know our voice, and they should, we should know our sheep. That's a weighty call, and it's a narrow call. Fourthly, Peter talks about a sincere manner of true shepherding. 
a sincere manner. He's given us a powerful appeal, a presumed model, a weighty, narrow call, and now he gives us a sincere manner of true shepherding in verse 2 and 3. He gives us three different contrasts to paint the picture of who should be an elder and why they should be an elder, what motivates them, what, what's the flavor of the eldership, what's the What's the attitude of the elders? What drives pastoral ministry? You shepherd the flock, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Let's take each one of those on its own. Eldership and shepherding, oversight, should not be by compulsion, but by a willing heart, a willing spirit. Not under compulsion means don't do it out of guilt. Don't do it lazily. Don't do it only doing the bare minimum. Elders should not be those who are motivated by only sticks and carrots. Here's a reward If you don't do this, here's the trouble. We should do it, not under force or weight, but but willingly, freely. That's one of the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3. If any man desires the office of an overseer, he desires a good thing. There's a desire that should, should there spring from this pursuit of eldership. It should be done volitionally, voluntarily. Even more than that, we should say it should be done happily, zealously, which maybe looks like this, that every good and caring elder pastor should regularly need or occasionally need the help of his fellow elder brothers to hold him back from doing all that he wants to do and all that he feels compelled to do. You see, yes, elder pastors should, should think marathon, not sprint. Yes, they should know that their bodies can burn out as well as their brains and their hearts. Yes, we can push too hard and too much. Yes, we should be constantly aware of our family's needs and health and, and, and possible neglect there. But a caring elder pastor will probably always push the envelope not towards laziness, not towards neglect, not towards underdoing it, but probably push the envelope more towards overdoing it. His family shouldn't be strained, but his family probably shouldn't be surprised to feel stretched. Oh, of course, some feel stretched and work hard because... Their work has become an idol. That can happen among pastors just as it happens in your occupation. Yes, some can overdo it because of a Messiah complex. Some can work hard simply because they're control freaks. Simply because they they think no one in the church can do it like they can. But for many caring elder pastors, they tend to push the boundary towards overdoing it simply because they want to. They do it willingly. Occasionally they grumble. But generally speaking, they do it willingly. They can't help it. The the needs are great. The needs are many. 
The burden is great. The sins and hurts of the body don't wait for an easier week. The Puritan Richard Baxter wrote about this in a work for pastors in the mid-17th century. He said the ministerial work must be carried on diligently and laboriously as being of such unspeakable consequence to ourselves and others. By God's grace and for his glory, we are seeking to uphold the world, to save it from the curse of God, to perfect the creation, to attain the ends of Christ's death, to save ourselves and others from damnation, to overcome the devil, to demolish his kingdom, to set up the kingdom of Christ, and to attain and help others to the kingdom of glory. Are these works to be done with a careless mind or a lazy hand? Oh, see then that this work be done with all your might. Peter says, as God would have you, he would have you do this. Do it willingly, not of compulsion. Also not for shameful gain, he says, but eagerly. Not out of greed. Not merely for a paycheck in the case of those elders who are freed up from the church to to do their everyday work in the church. And by the way, that's probably a better way to talk about that relationship between the church's money and a full-time pastor. Pay, paycheck, compensation are probably not the clearest ways of talking about that relationship that that pastor has with his church. Instead, being freed up from outside work is, is probably a better way of putting it. Yeah, it takes longer to say, but, but no good pastor simply does his job because he's being paid or because there's going to be money at the end of this. I can't tell you how many things I've done in pastoral ministry where I didn't do them because I was getting paid. In fact, you couldn't have paid me enough to do them. I did it for a different reason, right? We, you don't do it because you're paid. You don't do it because it's the job. You don't do it in exchange for some money. Here, do this, get this bonus. No, we do it because, because the shepherd, because of the sheep, because the needs are great, because the calling is weighty. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not merely to make a decent living, when I began pastoral ministry, the pursuit of pastoral ministry back in, I don't know, 93 or something like that, I had every expectation that I would pastor a very small church and squeak by financially for the rest of my life. This was a surprise. Desert Springs Church was a surprise. Before this, I was pastoring a church of 50 people, and we didn't have health insurance. And, and I thought, this is the norm. This is what we'll do. Not for shameful gain. I don't say that to commend myself. I, I say that because that's just pastoral ministry. It may be in Victorian England, you can imagine someone deciding to go into the ministry, become clergy, because it'd be a decent and pretty easy life. I don't think any pastor today in America thinks that. I hope not. And then Peter also says that elders should shepherd the flock, not domineering over those in their charge, but instead being examples to the flock. Not harsh, not driving the sheep, 
Not ignoring the sheep. Being examples. Doing all that we call them to do. Because it's all of what God calls us to do. So we flee hypocrisy. Fellow elder pastors and ministers of the gospel at Desert Springs Church, my brothers, let us hear this as a fresh charge from the Lord. Let us renew our commitment to shepherd the flock and to give oversight to that which he's appointed us, not because we have to, not because we're paid to, not because we must, but because we want to and we do it eagerly, not domineering over them, but leading them in example. Then fifth, Peter gives us a motivation, a future motivation for faithful shepherds. In verse four, he gives us his motivation when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. And really, I think there are two motivations here in verse 4. One is direct and obvious, the second half of verse 4. The first, though, is just the simple mention of Christ's coming. When the chief shepherd appears, hopefully every conscious, godly, elder, pastor, hears that and thinks of accountability. When the chief shepherd appears, should, should elicit comfort and fear because it's God's flock, because we've been put in charge of it, because he's the chief shepherd and we are his under shepherds and scripture is clear that we'll give an account for souls. It says in Hebrews 13, 17 to the church, obey your leaders, submit to them for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. That's an awe-filling reality and that should be part of our motivation as shepherds. But there's also that obvious, more comforting motivation in verse four. When the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the crown of glory. What's this crown of glory? That imagery would have been apparent to Peter's readers. It was the prize or the reward that was given in athletic competition. A wreath or a garland of green was placed on top of the head, sort of like in an Olympic ceremony where a gold medal is placed over the neck of the person who won. But Peter's point isn't competition, like there's going to be some first-place elders, you know, the blue-ribbon elders. Oh, you didn't get a ribbon? That kind of thing? No, he's not talking about that. The wreath in Peter's meaning here is a, a sign of completion, right? The end of the race, at the end of the race, you'll be done. It'll be completion. But also commendation, commendation from the master. The point isn't getting a, a gold crown or any color crown. No, it's not a, a thing that motivates us. It's God saying, well done my good and faithful servant that's the crown of glory a crown of completion a crown of commendation from our master that will come when jesus comes and jesus is coming this is a encouragement and motivation for every christian in suffering times it must be an encouragement and motivation for elder shepherds in any time of difficult shepherding it's not just when it's difficult out there. 
It's also when it's difficult here at home, with us, among ourselves. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 gives this whole list of the persecution he faced, the different beatings he had, shipwrecked a few times, all these things. And then he puts this at the end. On top of all this, there is the care that I bear for the churches, the worry, the burden he has for the churches. He says, who sins and I am not greatly grieved? When the work is hard and when the fruit seems light, we remind ourselves that Jesus is coming. And lastly, we see a necessary response from the church. In verse 5, it says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Why younger? Just the younger. Well, it's probably because the younger, in, at least in Peter's time, maybe not so today, but in Peter's time, the younger were more likely to be restless and impatient and, and to want to have a piece of the action, you could say. Generally speaking, the elders were the olders, and so the youngers, generally speaking, might get restless or antsy or feel like they're left out. Paul said in 1 Timothy 3 of the elders' qualifications that an elder can't be a new convert because he could too easily be puffed up with conceit. And Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2 to flee youthful lusts or passions and don't just think sexual lusts or passions. Anger is one of those and restlessness is one of those. Impatience is one of those youthful passions that Paul told Timothy to flee. So in Peter's time, maybe so in our time as well, the younger may be those who have more difficulty than others placing themselves under the elders. But by extension, of course we know this from other parts of Scripture, the younger with the older, the whole church should be subject to the elders. We saw that already in Hebrews 13. And let me read it again where it says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. And the verse goes on to say, Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Christian, when your elders think of you, they smile, let them do it with joy. That doesn't mean don't ever have a concern. It means, in fact, come with concerns whenever you have them and come quickly before it, it just boils up into this thing and other things. And then pretty soon you're coming to communicate only that you're going to look elsewhere. One of the ways elders lead with joy and have those under them obey and submit with joy is, is by communicating. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that wouldn't be of an advantage to you. I wonder, have you placed yourself under any elders? You're here, that's a good sign. But there are all kinds of people who come to a church and haven't yet officially and overtly placed themselves under a leadership and a church to say, I will be the church with you, I will do church with you, and I expect that you will hold me accountable. 
Are there elders who will give an account for your soul? Let me be honest with you. If you're not a member here, then I'm assuming not. I'm assuming that we, will, we won't give an account for your soul. Not in this Hebrews 13, 17 way. There's a difference between coming and listening to sermons and being the church and doing church. Elders must know who they will give an account for. We need you to raise your hand. That's why we have a membership class and a membership process. We need, in a church this size, we need to know who's in and who's not, who means it and who doesn't, who's a Christian and who's just playing. One more passage I'd like to read as we wrap this up. It summarizes all of this so well. It's 1 Thessalonians 5, which says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and esteem them very highly in love. Not because you have to, but in love do it because of their work. And be at peace among yourselves. That's one way in which you're a joy to them. And their shepherding is not with groaning. When you're at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, I think he means here, the elders... We urge you, elders, to admonish the idle, to encourage the faint-hearted, to help the weak, and to be patient with them all. In Peter's words, clothe yourselves with all humility. All of you. He started by saying younger, and really he meant younger and the whole church. But now he gets explicit and says all of you. Clothe yourselves in humility toward each other because, quoting Proverbs 3, God is against the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That's basic to the gospel. It's also basic to our relationships. Proud people are self-sufficient. They don't need correction. They don't need others, and they don't need leaders. But that spirit in its fullest form is one that doesn't need God and doesn't need his grace. The spirit of the proud is one opposite of grace. It's opposed to God. It's opposed to grace, and thus, no surprise, God is opposed to it. He is opposed to them. But the humble are those who have come to recognize their total dependence upon God, on grace, and their dependence on others. They need others to help them. We leaders must be an example to the church in these ways, to flee pride and to pursue humility like our Lord showed us and, of course, taught us. This is foundational to the gospel and to grace, that Jesus, the chief shepherd, laid his life down for his sheep. Did he lay his life down for you? Are you his? Are you forgiven in him? His life for yours, is that transaction taken place where you've repented of your sin and turned to him in faith? Pray it would be so. We pray you would join us in uniting together in love under Jesus, under elders, yes, with each other, alongside each other to love and to forgive, to practice God's ways with each other ever more so as we watch for the coming of the Lord and anticipate it eagerly. Let's pray. Father, we pray what Paul said of the elders' work would be happening even now, that the idle would be admonished and the faint-hearted would be encouraged and the weak would be helped and all of us would be patient with each other. Give us humility like Jesus, 
Help us to be clothed in that. Help us to see your hatred of pride. Help us, Lord, to grow in our hatred of pride and our love for humility. Help us to flee pride and pursue humility between you and us and between ourselves and others. Make us one, we pray. Unify us. May the world see this family to be one that's of a different economy, a different way. Our leadership, our love, our relationships, all of it, Lord, may it be different. According to your word, because of Jesus, by your spirit, and for your glory. Amen.